Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 32 of Sleep Talk podcast, talking all things sleep. And welcome, Moira. Hi, Dave. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to be getting back into the rhythm of recording some podcasts and talking about sleep and talking about rhythms. That's the theme for, for this month, circadian rhythms and their impact on mood and how light interacts with those things. Something that's pretty topical, so it should be good to talk about. Absolutely, because we're sort of we're talking about getting into the groove again and we're, we're over the winter solstice, over the hump, looking forward to that optimism. I love that optimism between June 21 and December 21, where it gets lighter and lighter and lighter, and then, well, that is in the Southern Hemisphere, and then that sort of sad, for me, it's a bit, oh, it's disappointing when it gets darker and darker, because as we'll find out, hopefully, from Sean, there's just so much benefit of, of light, and it's something to really capture. So we'll talk about the theme shortly, and the reason to pick that theme is the emerging research about the relationship between circadian rhythms and mood, and it's long been written about in popular literature about this relationship between sort of time of day and mood, the mornings and melancholy and, and these types of things. So we'll try and pick up on that. If you enjoy the podcast, write us a review on iTunes. And if there are podcast topics that you're interested in talking about, send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. So as we talked about in the introduction, this month we're going to talk about rhythm and mood or rhythm and blues. And there is increasing attention about the relationship between the circadian rhythm and mood, and particularly as a potential treatment for depressive symptoms and maintaining healthy mood. So not just for depression, but for all of us who want to maintain good mental health and and manage mood. And there is a long association between things like time of day, seasons and mood. So Moira, you know how I love my sleep quotes. I, I pulled out a couple yes. of old sleep quotes that sum this up from the old sleep quote book I've talked about on the podcast before. So the first one goes, such days of autumnal decline hold a strange mystery which adds to the gravity of all our moods. And that's from Charles Nodier, who was an influential French author in the 18th century and a librarian and one of the early romanticists. That's the first one. But a nice demonstration about that sort of change in light, change in seasons, adding gravity to, mm. to mood. Mm. The second one. For some nights I slept profoundly, but still every morning I felt the same lassitude and a languor weighed upon me all day. A strange melancholy was stealing over me. Wow. Again from the 1800s or so? Yeah, again, this is from the 19th century. So yeah. Joseph Sheridan Lefanu, don't mind my pronunciation. He was an Irish writer and an early sort of writer of horror fiction and a ghost story writer, apparently, of the 19th century. So it does have that darker yes. sort of thing. But I like that because it gets to that it's not about seasons, it's within a day. It's mm. the morning has that sort of slowness and heaviness and melancholy. And that's something we see in patients. And patients describe that to us. But interesting, too, he said um, for some nights he slept profoundly at the start of your quote. So knowing that he, it wasn't necessarily a lack of sleep, mm -hmm. but it's just that a time of day effect. Absolutely. The people, the morning types or the evening types, there's a real there's a real drop in your mood sometimes or, or you can't function as well as you want to at a certain time of day. And one of the reasons that quote really rang true for me is we do see this in clinical practice, you know, this association between mood and lowered mood and a tendency to eveningness type. 
mm. or a tendency to going to sleep a bit later and waking later. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is Sean Kane's group at Monash University has really been publishing some great work in this area this year, looking at factors that might be associated in that. And the first paper they published uh, on this this year was in Chronobiology International with Elise McLashen as the lead author. And that showed that people undergoing treatment with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors for depression who were evening types had more depressive symptoms and more suicidality. So there was a phenotype or a subtype of depression that didn't go particularly well with that type of antidepressant. And then since starting to put this episode together, Sean's groups published another paper or had another paper accepted for publication in psychopharmacology, which Sean will talk a bit about. And that looks at how the medication such as SSRIs modulates the relationship between light, rhythm and mood. And it's a really interesting relationship. So who better to hear it from than Sean? So thanks a lot for joining us, Sean. Thank you for having me. Now, if we were going to do an episode on rhythm and mood, who else should we get to talk? But yourself. So we're really pleased to have you helping us out and help us understand the relationship between sleep, mood, rhythms, depression, all of these things. Great. Well, it is my passion, so I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. So often when people think about circadian rhythms and a lot of the stuff, you know, as a sleep physician, I get involved with is people's sleep and wake behavior or sleep and wake schedules. But there's more to it than that. So the circadian rhythm really influences everything, and mood is one of those things that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's hard to tell. Uh, unfortunately, rhythms are under the surface. So you can see someone's sleep-wake behavior and timing, and you can think that you therefore understand what's going on with their circadian rhythms, but they're hidden. They're under the surface and hard to measure. So they can also be difficult to manipulate properly. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it later on, but there are some types of treatments that might actually harm some people with depression more than help them. And it's because of these hidden effects on rhythms that that's the case. So what are the important components of the circadian rhythm that impact on mood? Well, the two main things we think about when it comes to rhythms and how it could affect mood are the phase of the rhythm. So that's the the timing of the rhythm. So you can think of phase as a time of day. So if it's 6 p.m., that's a phase. 10 p.m., that's, that's a phase. So we think about the phase of the rhythm, especially in relation to your sleep-wake behavior. Uh, so one common thing to look at phase-wise is your melatonin onset. So everyone produces melatonin in the evening. And if your melatonin onset is approximately two hours before your chosen bedtime, that's usually the optimal circadian time to go to sleep. Problem is, unless you have access to radio immunoassays and, and whatnot, and, and weeks to wait to find out, it's difficult for any individual to know when their melatonin onset is. Other than phase, the other thing is amplitude. Mm -hmm. So our rhythms go up and down over the day, and you could measure dozens of things in, in your body that, that go up and down over the day, melatonin being one of them. But the strength of that rhythm, or how, how high and low the, the rhythm is, is its amplitude. And it's really a reflection of the strength of the signal for your clock to control your sleep-wake cycle, but all the other dozens of systems in your body that change over the day. And in the literature, what's the descriptions of how phase and amplitude are different in people with depression compared to controls? Some of it is a, is a little bit uh, messy, but the, the early literature on phase, for example, tended to show that people with depression tended to have a, a more advanced timing. So in the case of melatonin, their melatonin onset might be something like three to four hours before a typical sleep time. 
which we know is does not produce optimal sleep. So your sleep, even if you slept the same amount of time, if it's instead of two hours, it's three to four hours after your melatonin onset, it's going to be poorer quality. And that feeds into to next day mood. But for reasons I, I think we understand now, in later years, like into the 90s and, and onward, people tend to show that your phase is delayed. And so your melatonin onset, instead of being a couple of hours before, bedtime might be right at your bedtime. And that is equally bad. And in some cases, it, it might even be worse. So some people could be advanced and delayed. We, we've we done some research into why there's there's such a distinction in the literature by time. And we, we believe that that has to do with a change in antidepressant treatments of the drug. So with this finding, and now you think that the main abnormality in phase in depression is phase delay rather than phase advance, how's that going to impact on mood and potentially depressive symptoms for people? Sure. Well, whether it's it's phase advanced or, or phase delayed, they're, they're sleeping at a, at a bad biological time. So they get non-optimal sleep. And anyone who's gotten less sleep than they need will find that their emotional regulation is poorer the next day. It's an unfortunate reality for, for us that when we're tired, it tends to give us more of a negative bias. So we, we perceive negativity more easily when we are tired. And so anytime you have poor sleep due to an advance or a delay, that would be the case. But the delay can be especially bad because it pushes what we call your body temperature trough, your core body temperature minimum, which ideally would be two to three hours before, before you wake. It pushes that out into your wake time. So people who are delayed have a really difficult time waking up because during the core body temperature minimum, that's your the time of your strongest signal from your clock to sleep. Mm-hmm. So you're waking at this time when you're, you're already groggy waking up, but then you've got the strong signal to stay asleep. And it affects your ability to maintain alertness and, and positive mood all day long. Mm-hmm. So delays are, are quite bad. And, and you know, I've, uh, I've got the catchphrase, if you wake in your trough, you'll be off. <laughs> it seems to be the case. So that's, that's really a, a terrible circadian phenotype to have. And why do you think that phase delay might be occurring? You talked earlier about it might be a change in drugs that are being used. So yeah, what actually is that? Right. We, we think that there is this big change from all of these results showing that people with depression are advanced in their timing to being delayed. It occurs around the time when there is a switch from older antidepressants to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So around 87, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors became more of the the drug of choice and and really the first line of defense against depression. We just got accepted into psychopharmacology uh, just this week was a study showing that SSRIs greatly increase the response of the circadian system to light. Mm -hmm. It boosted it so much that even under dim room light, it looked like melatonin onset was at bedtime, and that is a terrible time for uh, your signal to uh, to sleep. So as melatonin is rising, it's a signal for sleep. Instead of being two to three hours before your sleep, it pushes it all the way to your sleep onset time. What's occurring here is it's all of the evening light, which uh, you get in your home, which could be relatively dim for your circadian system. It's perceived by the circadian system essentially as sunlight. Mm -hmm. So it tricks your clock into thinking it's still daytime. 
daytime is not the time to have a melatonin rise. And so it, it pushes that, that melatonin rise later. The bang-on effect then is pushing your trough closer to your wake time the next day and having miserable mood potentially and alertness all the next day. So SSRIs, they're the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, the most commonly used of the modern antidepressants. What about other families of antidepressants like SNRIs or other families? We would love to test them all, but... You know, that, that takes uh, grant money and sure. time. I'm, I've got the time. If you've got the grant money, I would be happy to run those studies. Now, anything that acts on serotonin will tend to, anything that increases serotonin will tend to increase light sensitivity. There are serotonin receptors in your core biological clock in the brain, and it enhances the, the effect of that light input to the clock. So something Whenever you experience uh, any kind of light input, it's, it's going to give some kind of signal to the clock. And what serotonin does is it essentially amplifies that signal. So mm -hmm. it might be small and nothing in your clock might not have responded to it at all. But now serotonin is essentially telling your clock this is a, this is a bigger signal than it really is. So what about other social factors that might have changed in that sort of late 80s, early 90s? I remember I had a Palm Pilot in the early 90s. It was the start of the screens that we sort of... Yeah. Hold close and the start of the personal devices. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But those those old personal devices, they they had those really flat, not not very yeah, bright sure. screens. Sure. Uh, there wasn't much to them. Now we have these these screens that just blast your face with with blue light. And I think this this is a real problem, especially with anyone taking an SSRI who's trying to normalize their their sleep cycle. I'm I'm somewhat guilty of it um, of using my phone at night when when you shouldn't. But if you're on an SSRI and you're exposing yourself to light from a phone, that that light is already so blue and rich that your circadian system responds to it very easily. Now you ramp up your responsiveness with an SSRI, uh, and you've got real problems. You're you're constantly tricking your clock into thinking it's it's day while you're trying to get to sleep. So. Those, those personal devices, so blue and rich, so bright for your clock, are really problematic. And what about light in the public spaces? Because that's changed too. So, you know, street lighting, lighting that we get exposed to, you know, where it's a lot lighter at night and people are engaged in more external or out-of-the-house activities at night. The thing that concerns me is is this move toward very these very blue-enriched LED lights in, in general, in, in houses and, and outside. And it is more energy efficient to have the LEDs and certainly they, they last longer, they use less energy, but your typical LED is is really blue enriched. Then the the circadian photoreceptors in, in the eye, they're called melanopsin, they respond in a very sensitive way to blue light. And the the thing with those photoreceptors is unlike rods and cones, you're you're consciously aware of when you're getting, you know, visual rod cone input. Yeah. It's a visual system. It's a conscious system. The melanopsin system is non-visual. And so you are, you have no conscious awareness of how bright light is for your clock. So it's difficult because we're using our consciousness to know how bright something is, but we really don't know how bright it is for the clock. But, but we use the term blue light, but mm -hmm. it's not blue, right? Right. Well, yeah, something can, can look blue for, for different reasons, and sometimes something can not look blue. But if I take my spectrophotometer that tells me exactly all of the wavelengths that are in light, you can look at something and say, that's not very blue, and see this blue peak. 
And that's that's the thing about LEDs and 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 the the use of LEDs everywhere is that they they don't always look blue, but they often have that blue spike. So your melanopsin knows it's there, mm-hmm. it's responding to that, but visually and consciously you you don't know it's there. So we talked about for people with depression, SSRIs might be a modulator of light. And there's also some of the social factors with depression of sort of self-regulation and not turning off lights or not managing sort of light exposure. What about for people without depression and sort of thinking of light, circadian rhythms and mood sort of symptoms, depressive symptoms, feeling more alert, feeling less alert? rather than clinical depression. Light can influence the mood and alertness uh, of anyone. You don't have to be depressed to get a benefit from exposure to light. So you know, light light can be a, a bit of a double-edged sword. If you if you get a lot of irregular light at night in the evening using your phone in bed, it can it could disrupt your rhythms, but getting a lot of light in the daytime can be quite good. Really in general, the more regular the light the better. But light in the day can can really boost your mood. And uh, we know that that is mediated by this circadian photoreceptive system. So the more blue is in the light, the less light you need to get a, a boost in mood. Mm-hmm. This is this is not something that uh, is only seen in, in depressed people. And we're doing, in my lab, doing a lot of studies now in effects of light and more, more subtle aspects of uh, cognition. So we we believe now that light, especially blue light, can alter your expectation of bad things happening. Mm-hmm. So basically it could it can decrease your pessimism, which it, it might sound new and, and, and crazy, but it's something that everyone experiences. When you go outside and it's a and it's a beautiful day and it's bright, everyone's experienced a more optimistic mood. And when uh-huh. it's dark and gloomy and there's very little light out there, there's uh, the blue light's not there to be had, we feel more pessimistic and we think of that as, as a, you know, some kind of maybe artistic-esque interpre- interpretation of sure. our environment, but it could also be just a direct result of this simple physiological system where our circadian photoreceptors, when activated, increase mood by their, their direct activation of certain areas of the brain involved in how we feel and, and how we expect things to happen. Might that be one of the mechanisms in seasonal affective disorder or variations in mood across seasons? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's evidence that people with seasonal affective disorder have a decreased responsiveness to light. So that mood elevating effect of light wouldn't be there in the day. And we're finding now with people, not with uh, seasonal affective disorder, but just major depressive disorder, unipolar disorder that's not related to uh, time of year, that they also have are hyposensitive to light. Mm-hmm. So their circadian systems, if given the same amount of light as someone else, actually respond a lot less. And we think that really we've discovered potentially the mechanism for why SSRIs work at all. We know that they they increase the action of serotonin. And that has led post hoc to a serotonin hypothesis. So if increasing serotonin uh, helps depression, then there must be low serotonin in depression, which is an easy thing to, to, to think. But what we think is actually happening is that your circadian system is less responsive to light in depression. And SSRI counters that, normalizes the responsiveness to light. Mm-hmm. And so during the day, that ends up giving you more of a mood-elevating, alerting effect of light. That's great. The downside is the nighttime light. So if yeah. you have it in a regular schedule, and, and people who are evening types have very regular schedules, they get a lot of light at night, that tends to cause circadian disruption. So those people who get poor rhythms in light and too much light at night 
give themselves a perpetual jet lag. So SSRIs in depression would be great on, on one hand, and you get lots of mood-elevating effects of light, and it's, it's amplified. Yep. Bad at night if you've got irregular schedules and you get this perpetual phase-shifting effect of light. And in some people, one is, is battling the other, and, and you get some balance, and that balance can be good, that balance can be bad. So with your research on SSRIs, do they work better for some people rather than for others? Yeah, they, they do. And we were we were expecting this and, and I published something a few months ago showing that SSRIs are really not optimal for people who consider themselves evening types. Mm -hmm. So people who are up late and get a lot of light in the evening and tend to have very irregular schedules, when they are on SSRIs, they actually tend to switch medications more. They report less efficacy for mm -hmm. their mood. So they have poorer mood while on the drugs and more suicidal ideation while on the drugs. Mm -hmm. So this is not unexpected because uh, we've found that people who are evening types, they tend to be already more sensitive to light. Mm -hmm. So when they are getting a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor that boosts their circadian system's response to light, it can basically make them far too sensitive. So even relatively dim light in the evening, uh, and light that I might say for the average person is, is perfectly fine, yep. for someone who's already sensitive to light and then boosted with a drug yep. can send them over the edge. Uh, and so they, they would live in a true perpetual jet lag. The rhythms would be bouncing around. They would almost never be sleeping at an ideal biological time to get good sleep. And there would be subsequent effects on mood. So really, we need to get smarter about treatment, especially understanding how important treatment is on the circadian clock and on light sensitivity. We need to start developing treatments that are targeted for a particular individual. We find most people with depression are hyposensitive to light. So they're, mm -hmm. they're not very sensitive to light. And that's part of why they don't have mood elevating effects of light during the day. And those people might do great on an SSRI because it would, it would boost a system that's hypo responsive, but you've got to watch it for for those people on the other end who are who are extreme evening types and have already too much responsiveness. Also, the the reason for the for the depression might be quite different. Yeah. So, in general, people who are already hypo responsive, maybe their depression mostly comes from their their uh, rhythm instability. Whereas for people who are um, insensitive to light, it's it's due to that light insensitivity itself. So we really need to phenotype people better. We, we need to understand the physiological basis of their depression so then we can give them the right treatments. So some of it might be, um, you know, behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy in some people. Uh, it might be an SSRI. In some people, it might be a tricyclic antidepressant. And if we know what all these these uh, treatments and drugs do to the circadian system, then we can we can get the right treatment to the right person. But this is this is years of research. So, in someone who's not a circadian biologist and sort of altering their own lights at home, someone who just wants to use light wisely and use circadian rhythm sort of principles wisely to keep mood good, what sort of things should they do? I would advise doing exactly what I do, but not to stalk me to figure out what that is. I'll tell you now. I would say first thing is you regularity we're finding is is more important than than anything. Regularity of light. So try to stay regular. Now it doesn't mean that you have to be living in the dark after um, 7 p.m., but you've got to keep the lights pretty dim and, and have the right kinds of lights. So 
The first thing to think about is the light at night. In my own home, I, I had LED lights uh, outfitted, and I now never use them at night. Past dusk, I don't use those lights. Mm -hmm. I have lights that are a little bit warmer. It's difficult to get your hands on incandescent lights these days. Yeah. But I have lights that are a, a little bit warmer, and I only use those after dusk. And I never, I never use the, the LEDs after. I also make sure that on my phone, I have an iPhone, and I have night shift on full blast. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not enough to have those uh, those types. There's F-Lux or Flux yeah. is, is another one for, for Android. It's not always enough to have those at the default setting. The best thing to do is is, is ram them up to their, their max so that the screen looks very, very red. Yeah. So I'd use that. I try not to use your phone really at all within two hours of, of bedtime because it will it'll suppress your melatonin uh, and you need that signal to sleep. And you don't want to be shifting your clock around. So light at night shifts your clock. Like I said before, it kind of tricks your clock into thinking it's day when it's not. And then yeah. it takes longer to get to bed. So really controlling light at night is the best thing you can do and doing it very regularly. And then on, on the other hand, when you wake up, you want to try to wake up at the, the same time every day or as mm -hmm. close as you can and get as, as much light as you can. And in general, through, throughout the day, I would get lots of lights, a strong on-off signal that's yep. regular for your clock is really optimal. It synchronizes your clock in a strong way. Your clock then synchronizes thousands of other rhythms in your body. And if it's got a strong signal and it knows when it's day and it knows when it's night, it'll tell the rest of your body. So I really enjoyed doing an interview with Sean. Man, there's a lot of information there. And it was a really rich and sort of lots of points. But what were the things that stood out for you, Maura? Yeah, I really enjoyed listening to that. Shame I couldn't have been there too. It would have been great having him in the studio to talk about all this further. But we'll get him back again. You've become a bit of a regular, Sean. The take home, I suppose the things that stood out for me were I just just really, I never really had understood or thought about that people who are depressed or particularly even a seasonal component or not, that there's just this general under-responsiveness or under to, to light. Mm -hmm which is perhaps part of the problem, rather than we, we sort of think, we were thinking more that, you know, there's a lack of serotonin. But he's really, his group was really focusing on the, the lack of responsiveness to light. So that was a, that was a, that's a, that's a, the thing that stood out the most for me. You know, looking really at the the changing of the lights and all that sort of stuff, even his own home, talking about the, <laughs> he doesn't have the LEDs on after a certain time. And so I just thought, oh, wow, yeah. we've got to have some video component of that. <laughs> And I was trying to tease out from Sean, so what could the average person do that's pretty simple? <laughs> and I know I know what the perfect thing to do is, Sean, thanks, you explained that for us. Yeah. But, but is there any compromise? And it did make me think, of, I think, and it's such good information and that's why we're talking about it, the trickle-down effect, like the translation into or from this research into practice and via the media or via some people who don't have a scientific background or people I've seen in clinical practice who are you know, freaking out about the lights at night, mm -hmm. like having fights with their husband because he's turned the light on, like a little side lamp in the bedroom. So really becoming a bit extreme. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something else to, to really be aware of is looking at this fabulous cutting-edge research that they're doing and learning how to get the messages out that bit more clear and simple yeah. and not making people get too anxious, I guess, is the word I'm thinking. Look, it's thinking tricky, about. though, because I, I think one of the things I hadn't appreciated that Sean explained is just how little light can have mm. such a profound effect. Yeah. So then where's the room for compromise? Mm. So it does bring that challenge of do we have to be completely obsessive about mm. blue light exposure once the sun goes down, yeah. particularly in people that are depressed? Yeah, I guess that's the thing. But those, There's plenty of people who wouldn't be yeah. a different phenotype, I guess. Of Maybe that's the question. 
Like who who does need to be a bit more cautious? And like, do you think all of us? All of us need to be super. I think it's more to do with your you know your responsiveness to light, and if you're depressed or not. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So there is inter-individual variability in mm. responsiveness to light mm. as there is inter-individual variability in mood regulation. Yeah. So some people's mood's very stable no matter what the challenge that gets thrown at them and they can probably yeah. get away with light exposure, for example. Yeah. It's like the people who you know, have caffeine at night and have a big short black after dinner. Whereas we know that caffeine would generally think or should make it harder to get to sleep. So yeah, these individual differences are, are really going to be probably a big part of this body of research, I think. Yeah. What about you, Sue? What about you? What's, what's sort of the things that stood out the most for you? So, so one of the interesting things to tease out and also to highlight is we don't have the answers about things like seasonal affective disorder, that sort of variation in mood across seasons. Because you and I talked to Greg Murray back in episode yeah. 19 about seasonal affective sort of mood or mood yeah. changes with seasons and yeah. Greg's very much on the it's a more of a social phenomenon as people withdraw and they don't yeah. connect don't go less, out anymore yeah, they don't, don't exercise anymore connected mm. whereas Sean is a circadian and sort of light researcher mm. you know it's all about the light mm. and I think there's some evidence for each of those and probably how those things interact I think it's quite interesting. But I do really like if you wake in your trough, you're off. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hopefully we get to keep hearing that quite a bit because it's just such a great message and such a clinically relevant message that I just hope we can really get more traction and have more health professionals and the general public understanding mm. these concepts to be able to move depression treatment forward. So if people are looking for more information on this topic, I'll put the links to some of Sean's research papers in the show notes. You can follow Sean on Twitter. He's at, at circadian247. What else would you have as a Twitter handle if you're a circadian researcher? 24-7. 24-7. There's some links on Sleep Hub about light therapy and sleep and screens. And there's a book, it's actually one of my favourite books, called Chronotherapeutics for Effective Disorders. And it's a book that's been around for quite a long time, but not commonly used, but it essentially clock treatments for mood disorders. Mm, it's very good. It sort of tells you that this is actually not as new a concept as what we sometimes think, but we're starting to understand at a mechanism mechanistic sense how it works why it's important and are there particular people where we have to pay more attention so what's the clinical tip of the month according to david cunnington well it's actually according to sean kane <laughs> and so i'm really just trying to emphasize one of the points that sean made which i think actually really resonated for me as a clinician that if i'm managing people with depression a couple of things so people that tend to be eveningness type and that's some of the research that Sean has done. I'm going to think twice about using an SSRI as the antidepressant of choice in that group because it may actually then exacerbate their light sensitivity in the evening and therefore exacerbate the shifts in circadian phase and therefore have negative impacts on mood. So really thinking about that phenotype or that eveningness type and use of SSRIs. And then on the same note, in that same group, you know, if I'm thinking about depression and managing depression, really taking a good history to ask about light exposure and behaviour around light in the evening and then also light exposure in the morning. So Moira, what's your pick of the month? I was really taken by a recent publication. It was a, a randomised control trial looking at the efficacy of melatonin with behavioural sleep-wake scheduling for delayed sleep-wake phase disorder. And it was talking, I suppose, speaking of Sean Kane, it was a different group out at Monash, a lot of his colleagues, like, led by Tracy Sletton and co, jam-packed with the, the who's who of, of Australian research, an excellent publication. And what was surprised me is that I didn't realise that there were hardly any. I didn't realise there weren't randomised controlled trials with looking at melatonin for 
delayed sleep phase mm-hmm. after all these years. Did you? You probably were aware that there. Yes, absolutely a gap. Yeah. It's like that. You know, lots of things we do in healthcare and in yeah. medicine are yeah. just sort of assumed as a truism. Yes. But without any evidence for it. So I think they had just really small dose, 0.5 of a milligram, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> I should have it in front of me. I can't remember the yeah. exact dose, but it was a surprisingly small yeah. dose. Yeah, you know. Some pretty good outcomes, and so I recommend we'll put that in the show notes and recommend people have a look at that. Thanks, Maura. And, and nice, we're really featuring Monash University yes. research this episode, but that's fair because man, they're doing some awesome work, and yeah. over the years have really assembled a fantastic group of researchers. Absolutely, really starting to hit their straps. Yeah, ably led by the, the wonderful Shantha Rajaratnam. Good on you, Shantha, and the, it may it all continue for a very long time. What's your pick of the month? So my pick is a book on sleep. You know how much I love a book. <laughs> So this one's called The Science of Sleep, and it's by Wallace Mendelssohn. And Wallace Mendelssohn is a retired professor of psychiatry and clinical pharmacology from the University of Chicago. And he's been around and engaged in sleep research for many years, you know, as much as 40 years. And I really like this book. It's a different sort of book to a whole lot of other sleep books. Yeah. Gives a nice breakdown of exactly what it promises, the Mm. science of sleep. So stuff about how sleep works in humans, in animals, how some of the systems of sleep work, things like the body clock, then something on when sleep doesn't work right, so things about sleep disorders, Mm -hmm. and then some of the principles about sleep treatments, so things about sleeping medications, for example, and and how they work. But the bit I really like about it, it's broken down into bite-sized chunks. So each chapter is about 500 to 1,000 words, so a good sort of five to 10-minute read with some nice diagrams. So it's a nice sort of book to Take piecemeal yes. and work your way through rather than a big slog. So not for the book. general public? And I, absolutely Definitely. for the general and, public. And for a budding sort of practitioner yeah, as so well? It, absolutely. Mm. So I, I sort of read it and my thoughts were, you know, if I, for an advanced trainee or a health professional that I'm working mm. with who's interested in sleep, if you read that book, and it's not a big investment in time to read the book, it's mm. not overwhelmingly long, you'd actually have a nice breadth of information about sleep. Not very deep, because each article is only that 500 to 1,000 words, but a great breadth. And then you wouldn't be then sort of blindsided about an area of sleep where, gee, I know absolutely nothing about that. So, yeah, I think actually a really nice starting point for health professionals who maybe want to start out and learn a little bit about sleep. It'll Mm. give you a nice framework to then sort of add some more depth to over time. So, yeah, The Science of Sleep by Wallace Mendelssohn. I'll have to borrow it after you've... Had a good look at it. Indeed. All right. And Sean gave us a pick as well. So, Sean, what was your tip? My pick of the month is about something that has little to do with what I study. It, it just it just uh, obliquely catches it. It's on uh, magnetoreception and a mechanism for magnetoreception in birds. So this is something that was in current biology. It was actually back in January, but it, it's, it's hit the online science for the public okay. circuit now. It's a, a paper by Gunther and, and colleagues, and they show that this protein cryptochrome 4 protein in the eye of birds is the potential mechanism for the ability to use the magnetic field of the earth for migration purposes. So cryptochrome is is interesting because it's a photoreceptor that basically responds to blue light. So in the in the eye it'll it will change its conformation to when it's when it's hit with blue light. So 
we've known that there's light-dependent magnetoreception in, in different organisms. And cryptochrome, apart from being used in, in this way, cryptochrome is, is also a core circadian clock mechanism in, in the biological clock in the brain. The reason I'm interested in this, a friend of mine uh, actually did some work on cryptochrome in Drosophila, so in fruit flies, showing that cryptochrome was also essential in, in fruit flies for, for their detection of magnetic fields. And even if you put a human version of cryptochrome 2, in that case, into the fly, they could use that to tell magnetic fields. So it's been a contentious wow. thing whether humans can detect magnetic fields. I'm not consciously aware of being able to detect a magnetic field. It might be the case um, that I can. There's yet to be a definitive research in that. But it's it's quite interesting that the, the human version of cryptochrome could potentially allow you to tell uh, the magnetic fields of the earth for the use in, in directional migration. Maybe maybe that's a as well as migration or um, sort of geographical location, maybe that's the variation in sleep with the lunar cycle is tied up with that sort of magnetic field variation. Right. So yeah, that that's a possibility. So yeah, you do get some some changes in in magnetic fields with that. So yeah, that would be uh, an interesting possibility and and it touches on what was almost my uh, my pick which was a, a study by uh, Thomas Weir on bipolar mood cycles with uh, lunar entrainment, but oh, it nice. didn't make the cut. <laughs> but anyone can look that up. What's coming up in the, the sleep world? So look out for the next episode where we'll build on some of the things we've talked about in this episode. So we'll talk a bit more about clinical depression rather than just depressive symptoms or, or mood and some of the things that can occur or happen with sleep in depression and bring that to some of the treatments of depression as well. And we'll have Sean Kane again talking about some of his work, as well as uh, David Plant from the University of Wisconsin. So a couple of really great interviews in the next episode. So thanks very much for listening to this episode. And thanks, Moira. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And if you've got suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or any of the podcast apps, or look out for the Sleep Talk app in the iTunes store. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.